Kobe went public with his alter ego, the Black Mamba, after winning the NBA championship in 2009. What most people don't realize is that this alter ego was in the works since 2003. It was painstakingly crafted and iterated on with the help of a performance coach specializing in identity-based performance. Today's guest is the man that actually constructed the Black Mamba with Kobe. As a coach, he's helped thousands of athletes, leaders, and public figures get out of their own way to reach their full potential. His book, The Alter Ego Effect, was a massive eye-opener for me personally into how changing our perspective can change our life. In this episode, we learn how our imagination can be one of the greatest assets in improving our performance, the specifics of how Todd worked with Kobe to craft the Black Mamba, and what traits many of the high-level athletes Todd has worked with share. This is the Exponential Athlete Podcast. Todd, Super Richard, Citizen Todd, Geronimo, <laughs> welcome to the Exponential Bo- a- Athlete Podcast. Thank you so much for coming on. Ken, uh, this is going to be fun. Yeah, I, I'm super looking forward to this. Um, in, in order to get the listeners acquainted with you, I think it would be really fun to do an origin story. I yeah. know you're a fan of origin stories. Uh, I think we talked a little bit about this offline. Yeah. And your origin story is maybe not what people might expect in the sense that there isn't necessarily this pivotal moment. Could you tell me a little bit about how you first got interested in human performance and how that has sort of evolved into this career that you have? Well, uh, it got started on a volleyball court in the middle of Saskatchewan when I was uh, 14 playing in a volleyball tournament. I grew up in an extraordinarily small farming community in Alberta, uh, 82 people. And so not a lot, not a lot of folks around. And we were traveling, you know, I'm playing sports. I love sports. Uh, Any chance I can get, I'm on a field, a court, an ice, whatever. And I'm in this volleyball tournament and this guy keeps on jumping up and trying to kick me in the balls as he's spiking the ball. So he does it once and he misses me. Does it a second time every time I'd go up to try to block. Uh, Does it a second time and I said, do it again and you're going to regret it. Now, I had a challenge with sometimes holding in my emotions on any sort of sporting field. And so he goes up and he does it again. And I reach to the net and I throttle him uh, twice. And, you know, I didn't knock him out, but I bloodied him and he went to the ground. Now, apparently fighting and volleyball are not really synonymous. So I got kicked out of the tournament. So long story short about the origin stuff, my first great mentor was my teacher, Grant Henderson. And... You know, he was mortified that I had done that. I got a little bit of a suspension from school. But then when I came back, he said, you need to go to the library and you need to go read this book. And it was a book on leadership. And frankly, the book was not a good book, but it mentioned uh, the inner game and mental toughness in it. It was almost like an aside. So that kind of sent me down a rabbit hole. So in coming back to like, how did I get, you know, interested in kind of human performance? I had goals and I had desires to like want to, you know, do something with my life. And I kind of realized early on because of Grant that my, my biggest obstacle was going to be me in that process. And so I just kept on consuming stuff to try to make myself better and kind of get out of my own way. And that's what got me into it. And then I realized that after five, six, seven years of me devouring as much as I possibly could to try to realize my own goals, I had now consumed so much stuff 
that I could pass along some little wisdom to other 12, 13, 14 year olds. And it was like blowing their minds. And so that's kind of where it started. It's kind of, it was a need for myself, for my own goals. And then I just kind of followed my own nose type of thing, like sniffing around. It wasn't, you know, necessarily a direct path. Like I'm going to be a human performance expert and I'm going to go to college and university and get a degree on it. That's not how it worked for me. It was, you know, a lot of pinballing around. So you, you mentioned yourself improving yourself, improving your performance through improving yourself. Yeah. How do you define yourself? And then what types of changes do you make in yourself or who you believe yourself to be, to be able to improve this performance? What does that journey look like for you? Well, now it's very different than, you know, some of the level of ignorance that I had when I was younger. One of the biggest challenges I had when I was younger trying to develop myself was I, I kept on thinking myself as this like whole self, like, you know, uh, how do I, how do I get better in this fledgling business that I have? And, and I just kept on using and being trapped by a lot of these words that we use very naturally in our conversations, like me, myself, or you, or I, when in reality, my di the changes of how I make differences with myself now, very different because I separate out my different identities and the roles that I have in life. Like there's, there's the dad version of me. There's this, um, I kind of refer to it more as a caretaker, the caretaker or athlete part of me that's trying to take care of my body and then, and each one of these can have separate goals or separate missions that they can go on. And I've said this on stages to people, have you, when you're trying to answer the question of what's your vision for your life or what's the mission for your life, how many of you, raise your hands, because I always had a challenge with it, have a difficult time coming up with a mission statement for your life. But if we were to take this down to what's Ken's mission for being a producer of high quality content, in the world. That's Easy for me, yeah. so much easier, right? Or what's, what's my mission as a dad? A lot easier. So what's my process look like now? I'm very, very deliberate about these roles that I have in my life. The ones that are the most important for me to try to index towards being better or more excellent, or in the case of coaching and working with people, world-class. Cause my mission as a coach is to be the greatest coach that ever lived. Am I going to get that award? No, it's, it's a, but it's a personal governor that I've unlocked that's going to help me make decisions on the types of content that I consume or the mentors that I'll still go to to try to get better so that I can, because I love the act of coaching and mentoring and advising, you know, supreme athletes or entertainers or entrepreneurs and CEOs and so that question of like, how do what, what's the process look like now? It's very much about separating out my different identities and then going in and, you know, attacking or looking at the data, so to speak as well, and um, getting better through that process. So you obviously mentioned identity multiple times. Can we just define that as you view it? Yeah. And then let's, after that, talk about some of the tools you can use to be able to make the identity or the identities that you have yeah. as useful to yourself as possible. Yeah. So your identity is the, is the part or the construct of how you see yourself 
and what everything else is now stacked upon that to, I guess, help you show up in the world in that domain. So my identity is going to have a set of paradigms, attitudes, beliefs about myself and the world around me. Uh, I'm going to have behaviors, habits, actions um, that also get stacked on top of that, that then creates my performance in, in my world. So that's useful because if you're someone who's trying to change parts of the way that you show up in the world, trying to set a goal of losing weight. But if we don't change how we describe ourselves, like I'm a fat guy trying to lose weight, we were talking about that before. If we don't change that statement, we're gonna have a very hard time getting behaviors, actions, new skills stacked on top of what's at the very core, a rotten part of the entire holistic part of change. So I indexed early on when I started getting into this world of like inner game and mental game and helping athletes with performance going, oh wait, if I can help shift someone's identity, like shift the way that they see themselves, then that's gonna change. The other thing that really helped was what we were just talking about. That when I could start separating out people's identities for them, it became far more easy and it was a lot more useful to the client to go, oh yeah, I'm fixing or I'm shifting or I'm transforming this part of me. And I'm gonna keep these parts of me off the court, off the field, off the ice. Um, and, and not let some of these other things interfere with my performance out there. And we can talk about that because there's some very specific things that would get in the way you know, in the future. Yeah, well, that makes so much sense to me now in retrospect after I read your book. Yeah. Because before I was under the belief that, oh, I have to change. I understood on the underlying fact that I have to change my identity in order to make consistent change in my life. Mm -hmm. But I was under the impression that changing the identity, identity was a, a function of habits of a lot of these little things you do every day. Yeah. And that felt overwhelming to me yeah. is that we have to chip away at this thing like, uh, you know, Michelangelo chipping away at the David to figure out who I, I truly am. Yeah. But your model is very different. You're creating this alter ego, you're embodying them. And then over time, you can meld those together if you choose to. And to me, that is an arbiter of dramatically faster and more effective change, at least in my life and a yeah. lot of the people that I've studied. I'm interested how you sort of came to that realization. Uh, obviously, yeah. we talked a little bit about that with, with your journey, but what crystallized that when you were coaching or when you were working with these athletes? Yeah, so, um, well, actually to your point about chipping away at it, the way that I view it is like, they're, they're both useful, right? Um, I mean, one of, the, one of the worst things about social media now and the self-help world is that they've made people believe that everything is a belief issue. Like, like no, you gotta change your belief about yourself. and. In my world, like, listen, I've been playing at the very top of the mental game world now for a long time. The last place I want to make an issue for someone is their beliefs. Because sometimes, you know what? You just need a different tool. It, it has, you're not terrible at driving the ball. You've got literally the wrong flex in the shaft of your club. It's a tool issue. Or it's a tactic issue or something like that. Um, so you, you, you can definitely use both. But for me and the world that I became known for as being like a kind of a quick hit artist, like I can come in when someone's 
challenged or stuck or struggling, I can shift things quickly. And that's because I was going to shift their identity. So um, how did I kind of discover that identity stuff and alter ego? Well, it was, again, accidental in some ways. I, I stayed very close to my creative imagination when I was an athlete. And I was, a lot of the best things I think in life were born out of necessity, like need, even for people who invent something. And I was a kid who had the goal of being the first ever Heisman Trophy winner that was Canadian, um, going into the uh, NCAA. Well, that did not happen. Uh, easy uh, end to that story. But I was, I was a really good football player in my area, got some scholarships. But on the, on the field, I was six feet and 159 pounds in high school. There's just nothing I could, I could not consume enough calories to gain weight. I just had this insane metabolism, which I wish stayed with me, you know, now in some later years. But I, I had this insecurity of being too small out there. Well, but my desire was bigger than my insecurity. And so what happens is we all do this. I, I used my mental faculties or my creative imagination to invent something for myself. And for me, that was an alter ego. And so I invented Geronimo. And Geronimo was the composite of my two favorite football players in the NFL, Walter Payton and Ronnie Lott, and a tribe of Native American warriors, five guys in particular, and led by Geronimo. And then in the locker room, I would go through this visualization process, which maybe we'll wait and we'll kind of unpack that in a little bit. But I used Geronimo to play out on that football field. And then when I started my business, now fast forward five or six years when I started my business, here I am, I'm 21, I look like I'm 12, I don't have four best-selling books and I don't have a bunch of letters behind my name, but I'm good at apparently teaching young kids about the mental game, which again, me starting this business, completely accidental. I was volunteering at a high school, coaching the defensive backs. Parents started asking me if I could mentor their sons and daughters because I seemed to be getting them results, not just on the field, but in the classroom as well, because I was talking to them more about their mental game and giving them some strategies that they could use to you know, perform better. And voila, the peak athlete was born. But I'm not making the phone calls. I'm not dialing people up like I'm supposed to to grow this business because I'm wholly insecure about doing that. I hated rejection. So I invented Super Richard and Super Richard was the guy who was custom built to make phone calls and be the promoter of Todd's stuff, which we'll get to in a little bit because even that languaging, being the promoter of Todd's stuff, gets into what I talk about in the book, the importance of the origin story or the mission of your identity. So here I am, I'm now working with athletes, I'm growing, this business starts to get some attention. I'm now working with higher caliber athletes in the early 2000s. A lot of times because of my mentor started sending me clients that were professional because he was known as the Yoda of baseball, Harvey Dorfman. Worked with some of the biggest names in Major League Baseball. 
And as I'm talking to these people, they're talking about all of a sudden, oh, yeah, I, have a, I have this identity that I step into, or I have this alter ego, or I have this character, like all these different words that they would use. And in the beginning, I'd be like, oh my God, I did the exact same thing. It's not cluing in yet that this is an actual device that the best of the best are using to perform consistently above the average. And then one day it was just this one, uh, this one woman that I was helping with preparing her for the Athens games. Uh, the 2004 Olympic Games, but this was a year earlier, where she, just the way that she mentioned her alter ego, I was like, oh, wait, no, this is an actual thing. So then I like went back and interviewed old clients and talked to uh, existing clients. And that's how I started to build out this sort of methodology of building an alter ego specifically created to help you win on that field of play. That makes so much sense. And so I'm interested in how many of the elite athletes that you've worked with had some framework similar to this in play? So it's obviously not as well refined as what you were doing, yeah. but they were stepping into someone else. They were leveraging s some of the same tool set. Yeah. Because to me, that's an interesting thing. It's like, oh, like a few people are using this at the top. Or if it's almost everyone is using it, this at the top, yeah. that's a completely different paradigm. Yeah. Yeah. So it was... The, the people who were consistently performing at high levels, it was almost everyone was very consciously deliberate and aware that they had this different thing that they took out onto the court. Another group of them, they weren't consciously deliberate. They were doing, let's say, all the kind of steps. They just weren't aware of it at the conscious level. They had unconsciously done it to help them survive even or get to the level that they needed to, but they, they, they weren't deliberate about the process. But almost none of them had all of the kind of steps tacked off in order for them to be even more intentional and deliberate with it. Because that was the key. When, when I sort of turned the key and said, no, no, this is an actual thing. Everyone, everyone thought that they were a little bit crazy to do it. All of them thought it. And then when I come along and I say, no, it's actually a thing that the best of the best are doing, that sort of clipping of a puppet string that's kind of holding them back from really leaning into it was huge for them. Because they're like, oh, no, wait, like I'm not, you know, I'm not crazy. I'm like, no, it's private to you. Like when you get inside the heads like I have of, thousands of top performers in so many different fields like entertainment and, and sport and business. There's so many things that we hold on to that we think we're, we're kind of lunatics with it, that we're crazy. And I'm like, no, this is a part of the human experience. What you're denying yourself is accessing your creative imagination, which for me, creative imagination is the number one thing that we have been gifted with. That is a superpower that smashes resistance. Resistance, whatever that might be, it could be fears, it could be um, insecurities, it could be traumas or whatever. Our creative imagination is the very thing that we're gifted with that helps us crush resistance. So let's talk a little bit about imagination. So I've heard in multiple athletes, a, a professional athlete recommended that I read Joseph Campbell's book, A Hero with a Thousand Faces. Who is Joseph Campbell? And yeah. how is he related to imagination, creativity, storytelling? What, why are so many of the athletes that I've talked to talking about him in particular? So Joseph Campbell was uh, a mythologist 
in the 1900s, really kind of came of age with his books in the 1970s. Uh, George Lucas points to Joseph Campbell as when he was struggling to write the Star Wars epics, his story was all over the place. He discovers Joseph Campbell's Hero of the Thousand Faces and the power of myth, really the power of myth more than anything, where Joseph Campbell has unpacked this hero's journey. Like everyone's kind of heard about the hero's journey. It's like a vernacular that's out there in the world. Joseph Campbell is the one who invented the hero's journey, which is just think of it like a circle with a bunch of steps along the path that every hero goes on in order for them to eventually return with what Joseph Campbell would say, the magical elixir. And what he found was in every myth and legend and fable in history told in, you know, uh, the Little Chinese Jerry traditions or the Indian traditions or Brahma or, you know, the Celtic traditions or whatever, every single one of these followed this hero's journey type model. And, and so George Lucas then kind of really made Joseph Campbell famous because there's a famous documentary, which I encourage everyone to watch called The Power of Myth that was um, done in 1988 by PBS uh, interviewer, Bill Moyers. And that's how I became in contact with Joseph Campbell. And Joseph Campbell is one of the three inspirations of my super Richard alter ego. Um, and, and so people say, read the power of myth because it helps you understand your own narrative and these journeys that you go on. And when you know the process of what happens for every hero, you can lean into these unexpected trials and challenges that come along. Not because, oh, woe is me. Look at what's happened to me again. It's like, no, this is a part of the process for anyone that wants to aspire to do something hard and challenging. The reason is because the person that comes out the other side, that's who I'm always, it's a phrase that I tell people all the time. When you do this, you're going to be really excited about the person who comes out the other side of this. However, that's if you approach this the right way. So you can burn a lot of bridges. You can be extraordinarily difficult throughout the entire process. That's going to rob you of the best version of you coming out the other side. There's many kind of roads and pathways ahead, sort of um, philosophically, I guess. But when you continue to lean into this process really hard and challenge yourself, that version of you out the other side, that's a hero you want to meet. Yeah. Well, I think part of that too is every hero's journey has some adversity that you overcome. And with the mindset of any alter ego you'd want to create, the idea is that we're welcoming the adversity. And yeah. I know in every single story that I'm going to come out better because of it. Yeah. I think that that narrative, especially for athletes, is particularly interesting mm -hmm. because I don't think that there's any athlete ever who's dominated their sport that felt that it was easy the whole time. There yeah. were moments of easiness, but there was a lot of hard work. There was a lot of adversity that they had to overcome. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, but even that, like the idea of there were moments of easiness. Well, sometimes what they're articulating is, you know, that was where really the flow state or the zone state was invited into this experience. And how did I get there? Well, you gifted yourself with that experience of zone and flow state because of all this preparation and work that you put in over here, coupled with the attitude that you brought to it or the allowing that you brought to it. Because that's kind of a key part of um, inviting in your absolute best performance is 
you trust yourself in that competitive time, competitive game, competitive whatever, that you've done the work and now you're just going to allow whatever this thing has to just come out now. Because if you try to consciously force it, you're, you can't get to all your capability. You just cannot as an athlete. So is that the relationship that the flow state or zone states have to alter ego is that the alter ego is in sense a structure that allows you to be free. It 100%. allows you to, to have one of my favorite things about studying Kobe is that I think his mom told it to him is that when you have structure in your life that enables freedom, it actually doesn't yeah. uh, detract from freedom because you know what you're going to do and then you can just execute. You can yeah. be free within the confines that you set. Yeah. Well, I mean, people look at constraints as if it's a prison and it's not. The constraint is the constraint oftentimes is the very thing that makes you either unique or it's gifted you with some sort of superpower or skill set. Um, to use someone completely different, Mick Jagger. So Mick Jagger, known for his like, you know, worm-like moves on the, in the middle of the stage or whatever. You know where that was born from? Because when the Rolling Stones were doing small little stages and bars and clubs in London and Manchester and Liverpool or wherever they were going through in the UK, after they piled all their equipment onto the stage, there's only a small little area for Mick Jagger to like, you know, be as gregarious and effusive in his performance. And it was that that created it. If he had nothing but stage room, that signature Mick Jaggerness would have never been able to be born. And uh, so, you know, the constraints are important or the structure is important because it actually invents and creates the uniqueness for you. So constraints and simplification, I think, are unbelievably powerful forces for athletes. We don't want to overthink when we're performing. We, an alter ego in some sense, simplifies the game when you're within your field of play. On the other hand, I think we also are in a culture where we oversimplify how all of this takes place and how it gets done. I mean, we talked offline. The focus of this podcast is to dive into the details and the nuance of these things. Yeah. Because it's very, very rarely as simple as, oh, I, I'm just a different person when I'm out there and, and that's what it is. Well, that's how, I, that's how yeah. we know that someone doesn't understand it, exactly. right? They just, they just throw a bunch of platitudes out which is you know, what I appreciate about what we were trying to do. Like we'll go deep into this. So if someone keeps on going through this, like we'll go deep into the nuances of how you go and apply something like this so that you can go and realize the capabilities that you have in your domain. So how do you balance the nuance of a lot of these topics and the need for simplicity and execution? Well, simplicity can only be appreciated on the other side of complexity. So, that's why when you come across someone who can simplify a topic, you know that that person actually walked through the valley of complexity. Meaning that if they can actually simplify something down to actionable steps or insights, and when followed up with more questions, can actually under, you know, explain the nuances of why that is, because they can kind of go back down into the valley of complexity and say, well, here's actually why this is born the way that it is that's extraordinarily powerful for people. So why do we need to simplify this? Or how can we simplify this? Or what's the need of that? Well, it's to let people understand the context of it. And then if they want to, they can dive into the content of it and you know, make it more usable uh, for themselves. Um, but you had asked beyond the context or beyond the um, simplifying, what was the other thing you had asked about why it's important? 
Oh, more just about the nuance, but like, like yeah. how do we balance those two forces? Because, and I, I think yeah. you answered it effectively in, in, in that response, to, to be honest. Yeah. But, but I, I know that my urge is to overcomplicate. And I also don't necessarily think that I don't understand the topics as effectively as possible. Mm -hmm. But I also know that when I simplify things, Tend to, tend to happen very well. Yeah. But there's this natural urge to, in some people, to say, hey, like, this only explains 95% of the picture. But in sports, 95% of, of doing the right thing 95% of the time without having to think about it can often lead to better outcomes mm -hmm, mm -hmm. than knowing what to do 100% of the time, yeah, yeah. but not executing. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I would imagine that's something that athletes do struggle with, even at the highest. Well, you, you bring up a really excellent point. If you're someone who can only do something when you have 100% clarity, then you're going to trap yourself inside of a world that just does not exist anyway. Instead, even me, like if, if I know 50% of it and I still take action, what I'm actually telling myself is, that I trust myself that with the unknowns part of this situation, I'll be able to respond and react. That's actually what mental toughness is. Mental toughness is your ability to be flexible and adaptable despite what you're getting as a circumstance or a situation. Flexibility and adaptability is when you really appreciate that, then it's like, hey, throw whatever you want at me in this game today or in this competition. Oh, it's thunderstorms and rain during the gameplay today? I don't care. Or it's a snowstorm or it's windy. It's like, is this all you've got? This stuff is Cheerios to me. It's Cheerios to me. Like when you embrace that attitude of like, I can handle anything and everything. doesn't matter what that guy's trash talking me about. Is that the best you got? Seriously? That is the unknowns part. And I'd say like, just to bring this even out of sport and in general in life, it, when, you, when you trust yourself to respond to the unknowns way more and that it's okay, there's nothing wrong with you. The, the world isn't against you because, oh, here's another rock thrown my way. That's fine. I'll put this brick to the ground and I'll use it as my stairway to where I'm going to go instead of lament the fact that a brick got thrown my way you know, not to be too metaphorical with, with the conversation, but it's, it's true. Like you can't know everything. You can't have, you, you can't give everyone the 100%. And I think it's a trap that many people get into if they were creating content or something that they, that they think that they need to do that. No, give the listener some goddamn work to do. Give them homework, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, by the way, with all the people that would be watching and listening to your stuff anyway, that's how elite people think. The average person on the internet who want, needs to be spoon-fed everything, they can go listen and watch other people's stuff. Yeah. Even for me, like, I mean, I'm like, I am not for everybody. I don't want everybody, right? Like, I'm a, I, was talk, I was joking with my team about this. We we're uh, gonna be putting up way more content on YouTube. And I said that I wanna put a disclaimer on there that this channel should only have about 10,000 subscribers. Because I only think that there's about 10,000 people who actually have the internal indices 
to even care about this topic stuff. Like, I am not your general self-help guy. I'm not your general personal development guy. There are a million other people who simplify these topics down to, you know, brain dead, stupid popsicle, cotton candy, and bubble gum content that will never satiate your ambitions. Never satiate it. Because most people just want something that is, it's oh, easy. it sounds yeah. so good. Do affirmations. Oh yes, if I just tell myself every single day that I am worthy, I'm gonna be successful. No, you're not. No, you're not. Because maybe in this moment, you're actually not worthy. Your skills, the competencies that you've built up are not worthy of you having a certain value marker placed on top of you. Go and do the work. Yeah, well, in every athlete I've seen, there's that feedback loop, right? Where their confidence is based on what they've achieved. They do a great job of time traveling. They say, I've done this before, I can do this again. Great and you point. can build that in practice, you can build that in all these other areas. Oh, I've hit this jump shot 10,000 times. Mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure I can hit it in a yeah. game. I, I've done it enough that we can build on that. And I think that there's, that's where the, the hard work and a lot of this effort and these types of things come in is they reinforce the, the structures that we create for ourselves, the belief, any of these types of things. Just like you said, I can say tomorrow that I'm the Pope or something like that, but that doesn't mean that I've, yeah. <laughs> that, that I've lived the lifestyle that would make me qualified for yeah. a position along yeah, yeah. those lines. Yeah. And I, I like where that intersects with the alter ego and these, these broader topics is that we can reinforce these things over time. That's how we build them. You can have dramatic immediate change by putting yourself into another, yeah. uh, into another like, personality or into another identity, but that's usually based on things that you've done before. You know, if I'm a, a, a good golfer, I, I, as I described, I played in college. Yeah. If I put on another identity that doesn't take away from all the hard work that I've done previously, mm -hmm. that's still a part of what I've done and I can rely on that. But if I was trying to pick up, even pick up basketball or something, which yeah. I've never had interest in doing or, yeah. or have, have had experience in doing, that same paradigm shift that I'm making would not work because I don't have the prerequisite experience or things to draw from or anything along those lines. What, what I like a lot is that with the alter ego, you still have access to the resources and the experience that you had in any other area of life that you had. And you can just take the benefits of that and apply it to this, this new caricature and error. Yeah, you, you can, but we also wanna be careful that we're not viewing things through the lens of deductive reasoning sometimes. Yeah. And because like when I built up the peak athlete, I wanted to index towards science. And so that's why early on I, I brought on two neuroscientists to help influence the, the content and the research that we were doing. And that was when neuroscience, it's not the Huberman level. Now, neuroscience was a burgeoning kind of, it was just almost starting out in many ways. It'd been around for a while. But the idea of neuroscience was late 90s, early 2000s, kind of a newish genre that was growing. But like I've said to so many people, there is an art and a science to things. There are some things I just cannot explain. I try to do it in the book. Like, have there been any studies done on alter egos? No, it's a very difficult thing that you could go and study. But when I break down the underlying principles of what makes this methodology so effective, a lot of there is science yeah. behind it. Yeah, so like it's the science of like intentionality and, and whatnot. 
But uh, so to your to your point about the great thing about alter egos is it can still borrow like a lot of the competencies that you do have from your past. That's true. But what it can also do, which is one of the reasons it's so effective, it can also help you disassociate from this past that in some way, in many ways for some people really does hold them back because they have a story about what they can do and what I can do and what anyone can from where I'm from can go and do. And so now this alter ego gets to divorce from that story and create this brand new narrative that for many people frees them to go and finally allow what are some true capabilities to come out of them as well. So that's how we get, th those are in my mind, the two real major benefits is it, just to reiterate, the first is disassociation. Mm -hmm. And I, I recently read this book called Chatter by yeah. I think Ethan Cross. It talks a lot about how important disassociation is yeah. for improving outcomes, limiting downside, yeah. performing optimally in, in a lot of dis different situations. And then the other side is the sort of tabula rasa to create a clean, clean slate for new performance. Um, and that's where we get the performant performance upgrade rather than just the disassociation from yeah. the negative side. Yeah. Are there other elements to the performance upgrade that we get? Well, again, we would talk about it at the very beginning, that bifurcation of this holistic you that sits here is this idea is like, no, we're building this for this field right here. Like who's that person? What could we custom build to allow that golfer go and win out there? Um, I'll give you an example from, from the book even. So there was a, a tennis player that I was working with that was kind of widely known as the person who should be winning majors, but wasn't winning majors. Uh, and so I got brought in, uh, there, she was playing at the U S open here in New York city. And I, I wasn't, I was having kind of a hard time cracking the, cracking the nut on like, what was the thing that was holding her back? So for, we're out for lunch at my, uh, one of my favorite lunch places in New York City, Penelope's, best BLT in the city. Um, and so the check comes and I, and I grab it and she's like, oh, give it to me, I'll pay for it. And I was like, no, no, no I got it. And uh, she's, and I had maybe I think purchased the previous two whatevers, like lunches or dinners. And she started to get upset. She's like, no, Todd, let me get this one. And in, this is normally a very like kind and nice, nice, kind of uh, personality that she has. And I could see it like really grating on her. And in my head, I'm like, aha, I got it. So what I'm looking for sometimes is people have values or morals that they carry with them across all the domains of their lives. And you would never think that they could be negative, but they can be negative when we attach a story around what that value and moral means. For her, it was fairness and justice. And fairness and justice is a very common uh, value or moral that holds many top performers back. In that, when she was out on the court, her kind of, what she was known for was getting up on a player a lot, really kind of crushing them. Let's say she's up five sets, five love, five one or something. And then she would start to take her foot off the break, unknowingly, unwittingly. Why? Because unconsciously, she feels bad that she's making them look so bad out there. That is not being fair. So 
Anyway, we needed to unshackle her idea of what fairness and justice meant. And I tell this to people, this is why like this whole idea of sportsmanship has gotten a little bit toxic, where I said, when you're out there and you're beating someone, do you think it's fair that you let that person back in? And you know this from your, you know, when someone starts to get some momentum, momentum is the first place, not confidence. When you get momentum, then that breeds confidence and confidence with momentum over a little bit of time creates certainty. And when you have an athlete out there that's certain now that they can beat the person who's ranked number one or number two, all competitive advantage is gone. Raphael's competitive advantage is gone. Rogers, Tiger's competitive, it's gone because that person can actually now channel flow state and zone state, which all bets are off then for that, for that athlete. So going back to her, I said, do you think that's fair that you take your foot off the pedal and you let that person back in? Like, is that actually being fair to them? No, it's not because what you've just given them, if they beat you in that game or that match, you've given them a false sense of how good they actually are, but they don't work as hard as you do. They don't have your skills. So you're being very unfair to that person because they do not have reality as their basis for what they're going to take forward as to what it's going to take to get to your level. So here's what you need to do. You need to go out there and give them the full breadth and experience of what you've got. That's being fair. And for her, that was just the switch. She was like, I never thought of it that way. And then we built the identity who would never allow that fairness self to get onto that court. Like the, the, the negative part, that little enemy that can show up and talk you down from the heights of what you're capable of. Well, something that I find really interesting in that example and in some other examples is you kind of are using data in that, right? She's not working as hard as you are. You're putting in more hours, thus yeah. you should be able to outperform her. You have more backlog, that's a, a mental strategy that you can use. I find it really interesting how other athletes do that as well, is that they, they use the data to leverage, to, to ground what their uh, identity is, or it's grounding a lot of these things in, in some form of reality. And the cool thing is you can pick and choose data to make yeah, it as effective. We all do anyway. Yeah. <laughs> but but I, I've always found that as like a very positively sobering effect on my life is that, oh, objectively, you know, even, even among my peers, I don't like to compare myself, compare myself against others, but how do, how do the metrics look in my life? Wow, that's encouraging. Yeah. I mean, it's glass half full, glass half empty, but that is another mechanism that you can use to either ingrain something in you or say, oh, it's not as bad as I thought. This is not something I have to worry about. Yeah. I, I think that there's just counting things is even usually sufficient. It's yeah. just the observation of the data, not even analysis, yeah. that can be a very powerful factor. Yeah. Um, where, where, data, where data gets in some people's way is when they're just fundamentally inconsistent at what they do, because then they've got inconsistent data and that can rob, that will rob someone. And it, and it actually should, in many ways, rob them of their, their false sense of confidence around something. But then it can also encourage them to say like, look, look, at how, look at how far you are and you're actually inconsistent. 
with your approach to practice time or whatever. Imagine what happens when you're more consistent. So even there, the data can be alarming for someone, like show it up to their face, like hey, this is the reality. Um, and so yeah, it's still empowering. But you bring up a, an interesting point that we were talking about, I think beforehand, before we started things, around people have this indices towards, we were talking about the idea of starts with why, right? Mm -hmm. They gotta know why. Why is sometimes one of the most disempowering questions that you could be asking yourself. And it's not starts with why, it's always starts with where. Where are you? Where are you, right? Like if my daughter calls me in the middle of the night and says, dad, I need you to come and get me. I'm gonna go, where are you? You don't say why, that's probably yeah. a question you don't yeah. wanna ask. I might, I might eventually get to it. I want to know what's going on, but that's even a what question, not why are you calling me? No, where are you? You know, and then what's going on? And so where is a, it's a, it's a part of the data question. So like, I, I think athletes would find a lot more freedom, not even athletes, just personally, we get a lot more freedom when we've got at least some data to work from because it grounds us in a place of, oh, okay, this is where I'm at. And you can compare that against other people if you want. Oh, actually in the indices of things, I'm actually doing way better than I thought. Pulls you out of a personal narrative of like beating yourself up, which, you know, for ambitious people is, is, is not, a, not an uncommon place to go to. Yeah, I mean, I, I like starts with where quite a bit, quite yeah. a bit better. In, in terms of, well, to, to back up a little bit, you've done a great job explaining how to create an alter ego in the book in the supplementary episode, which again is not a replacement for the book by any stretch of the Absolutely not a replacement, a hundred percent. You gotta buy the yellow book. <laughs> yeah. But, um, but I also touch on that and, and give some examples. What, we, what I have no conception of is what are some of the misconceptions around alter egos and identity-based performance. Yeah. And that is something that I would imagine you hear a lot about more of it than yeah. Any other, yeah. any other resource. So I'll, I'll drink it straight from the tap. So one of the biggest ones that, uh, it's funny, the most successful people I've ever worked with or met never have an objection to the concept of an alter ego. And, and that's because they're operating from a very different worldview because they go, yeah, like in order for me to get to where I am, like that makes so much sense. I kind of did elements of that or I did do elements of it. But they know that like, as you're climbing the ladder of your own ambitions and you're actually making progress, you're grabbing at whatever little toehold or finger hold you can on that, uh, that, that, um, that cliff. It's the people who kind of stay in a purgatory of inaction or some action and then they backslide that will object in some ways maybe against it. And one of the first ones is, yeah, but isn't that being inauthentic? Or is that, is that faking it till you make it? Um, well, another word for faking it till you make it is practice, right? Like most people don't realize that the version of you that you've shown up with today is a practiced version. You've flexed the habit of every day, waking up and going through a series of behaviors or thought patterns that did you really choose them? Did you really choose all of the thinking patterns and behaviors that you have today? 
No one can pretty much answer that affirmatively. There are still things I'm going to be until the day that I die, clipping strings of and like being very aware of social influences or cultural influences that might be causing me to think a certain way. So one of the, one of the things that people would have a misconception with is that of being inauthentic. And it's just not something that from my experience of being around extraordinarily elite performers, they've ever cared about. Being authentic is something that the average love to consume themselves with. The reality is when you are very intentional about the version of you that you want to bring to a certain field, you're choosing it. I unpack it all in chapter number three. You're choosing these traits and abilities and ways that you're trying to show up, which is, you know, to use the term, that seems very authentic. You've chosen it. That's what I call in the book that heroic self. And it's not that the world is now filled with popsicles and bubblegums and beautiful meadows and things like that. No, it's the same challenges are going to be there. It's just that your experience of it is very different because you feel powerful because, no, this is what I want to bring into this world of mine. Conversely, there's that trapped self. And it's a trapped self because that's typically the word that someone would tell me if they aren't getting all of themselves out there or they're not taking the actions that they want towards the realization of their goals or aspirations. I feel trapped. And so I give you a framework of investigating what could be trapping you and then giving you a method for now showing up in a more, you know, powerful way that unpacks what is the core capability of all of us, which is our ability to creatively reinvent ourselves. So that's number one is that idea of being inauthentic. Um, and then the, the second thing is that, is this gonna, is this a, is this a bad thing? They think of like Jekyll and Hyde. Well, that's if you've like, I just got done saying you end up choosing an identity that is custom built to impress other people or to kowtow to other people. Cause anytime your motivations are of the external, like you're, you're doing this for other people or to fit in, that's why I'm building this alter ego or this identity in general, then that's going to end up trapping you because you're going to feel like, oh, there's still parts of me. It's, that's not really what I am out there. Yeah, and that is what by definition inauthentic would actually be. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and then the third thing is that it needs to be, even though we're having like a very serious conversation about this and we're kind of unpacking certain things, at the very core of what makes this thing so successful is that there's an attitude of playfulness behind it. And for me, we were talking about zone and flow state, playfulness was that final golden key that unlocks peak performance. Because it's the, the, this is where the data shows that because from the ages of uh, one years to seven and a half, eight years of age, we are caught in what's the theta brainwave state, which is classified as the creative imagination. And why is that? Well, that's necessity because we as human beings need to learn so much about the world around us. Socially, we need to learn our physical bodies, like how to manipulate things, how to ride a bike, how to walk, how to run, how to navigate social environments, 
how to learn uh, you know, some of the just basics, whether it's math or writing, all these things. So it's very useful for us to be in this theta brainwave state. So there's beta, alpha, theta, delta. Delta is like deep REM state. Theta is the creative state. That's where zone and flow state lives. Alpha is where we're focusing. Like that's probably where you and I are at right now is the, is the alpha brainwave state. We're focusing in on single tasking. And then beta is sort of the waking mind. It's, uh, it's where judgment reasoning uh, sort of sits. So um, the, when you're in that theta state or when kids are in the theta brainwave state, what are they? Super playful. And you know what they don't have? You don't learn about you, you, yourself, or even develop an identity until when? About eight, nine, 10 years of age. So there's no me, there's no concept of me-ness yet. So you're very fluid with how you show up. One moment I'm a nurse as I'm playing friends or playing it with my, uh, my sister. One time I'm Superman jumping off the couch. One time I'm, you know, my favorite basketball player out on the, the front driveway. Like we're very, and there's nothing weird about that. All your other friends play along too. And then we start to get older and we like our judgment and our reasoning and our cognitive brain starts to kick up and we start to take ourselves more seriously. And we think that that's us. And that's why the alter ego is so powerful because it also unlocks this creative side, this playful side. And when you can lean into that, that is another one of these great amplifiers of the self is to be more playful with it. So I think that's one of the misconceptions with it is you can't also be very playful with this idea. So is there a way even within this or outside of this to enhance our creativity, enhance our playfulness? Something every athlete I've studied, even though it might be surprising, is they were unbelievably playful in their practice mm -hmm. and the way that they viewed their sport. They were always trying new things. They were tinkering. They were it was very joyful for them yeah. to be able to experience it in different ways. Like once you get to a certain very deep level of nuance, the field kind of opens up because you know what's possible or what is seemingly impossible and what, what assumptions you can question. Is there a way or, or does that just come naturally with really getting deep into something? Um, uh, so I think it's all of that. I think it's all that. Um, the more that you get deep into something, there's more and more discoveries that are there that just like wake you up. And that's, you know, that aliveness sort of uh, is one of the ingredients to, to being playful with something. The, the other side is an element of humility with it too, knowing that you don't, you don't know everything. You haven't even discovered everything about your own capabilities in a subject. Kobe, was very aware of that, you know, even though he had an extraordinarily healthy ego as a basketball player, his approach to practice was very humble. Like he had very few things that he focused on. It was very foundational in his approach. He didn't have a million different types of ways that he tried to master something. It was the idea of, you know, the person to, to fear is the, is the one with like, one powerful kick than the person who has 25 different ways that they could, you know, kick yeah, the you. Bruce Lee quote. Of, yeah. Uh, I'd rather fight someone who's practiced a thousand kicks once than one kick a thousand times. Yes. Yeah. Um, and, and so, yeah, all, all of that helps to 
allow someone to just be a lot more playful with the, the concept and become more playful in their approach, Keep, keeping understanding that this stuff is still a game. So having that game-like approach. Also approaching it and un, like gathering more, more, even more data with it. I just had a, a professional golfer recently who was challenged with his uh, course management, okay? When he had a few shots go astray, it really sort of, and you know this from being golf, it's very easy, okay? And so I challenged him, he was going into his third round, he had made the cut, and he was going into his third round, and I challenged him that even despite the fact he might look strange to other people, most people won't notice it, but I challenged him to hold a smile throughout the entire round. Hold a smile, hold a smile. Talked to his caddy and I said, hey, you know, get him to hold a smile. And I said to him, I'm like, hey, you're, you might get annoyed by him, but this is again, more of a challenge for you, but he's gonna say, hey, smile, smile. Now, why is that? Well, I, William James, who's really the, power, the founder of uh, psychology in uh, North America anyway, him and um, Alfred Adler had more of an approach in psychology of outside in, behaviorally in. Everyone, we're talking about even the inner game and the mental game. And we've over-indexed into the world of thoughts way too much, the world of like Freud and even Jung and, and whatnot. When the reality is, is we underappreciate this physical body and what it can do, right? Changing your state and your, your physicality. And holding a smile, a study was done um, in, uh, in the UK on, is there a benefit to gratitude? to writing out, being grateful about something versus smiling, holding a smile in, the, in your day um, for even just a short period of time. And what they found was the people who smiled had an overall higher level of increase in positive emotion and fulfillment in their days than people who just expressed gratitude. Now, does that mean that we don't express gratitude? No. no. Coupling them together, very powerful then. So point being is that, so I told this to the golfer. Well, he had his best round of the year that day. And in some ways it ruined him mentally because <laughs> uh, he's like, I can't believe that something like this, it's so simple that I have the power to just hold the smile. And, and that could really change. And I'm like, yeah, because you're so much inside your own head and golf is so much a world of being in your own head. Think about it. You're only going to data. How much are you actually executing the game of golf in an average round? Uh, however many shots you hit. And the average shot takes less than two seconds in execution. It's yeah. about 1.5 to 1.8 seconds from takeaway that. So you know you multiply that out. It's about a minute and a half. You're only executing the game. Yeah. Physically, minute and a half. And you're out there for. Four five hours, hours four and a tour, half, yeah. five hours, you know? Um, well, then people wonder why golf is such an, uh, a mental game. And uh, so anyways, going back to the golfer, just holding the smile massively transformed his, his abilities out there. It, it's, it's funny because I, I did a jujitsu tournament like eight months ago or something like that. And that was, I, I'm out there smiling like a lunatic the whole time because yeah. that's how rather than dealing with nervousness of combat 
that's how I process that into excitement. The, the physical manifestation of that gets me amped rather than the other. And my girlfriend's like, what is wrong with it? There's like, I just took all this picture. That's how you knew you're doing something right is when other people are like, what is up with that dude? Well, she's recording it and I hear in the background of the recording, why is he smiling? <laughs> and I'm like, well, yeah, and that, that effectively transformed that feeling of nervousness, anxiety into excitement. Mm -hmm. And there's so many of these little tools that we can do with our body language. And that's a really cool thing with the totem and, and the ritual associated yeah. with alter egos is we're changing our physical environment, we're changing maybe our posture, the look on our face, our yeah. the the expression or how we, you know, when, when I'm in an alter ego of, of talking, I use my hands a lot more. Yeah. Or when I'm with my girlfriend, I have different mannerisms or, or physically sure. it's different. And even in grad school, my friends made fun of me and I didn't realize this at the time, but in class I would talk completely different when I was answering questions than I talked with my friends. Mm -hmm. And I had no conception that I was doing that but the environment, the, 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 the classroom, the sitting, the setting. The context. It changed all the physiology, yeah. which is wild to me. Yeah, yeah. And then so from that, from a mental game standpoint, what, what, I would be, what I'd be doing with clients is like even this dialogue. This is what sometimes a lot of the uh, original part of coaching indexes like is you're getting to know someone and you're sometimes trying to borrow areas that they're very comfortable in and bringing it into another domain that they might be stressed with or anxious with or whatever. Could be shooting the free throws from the, um, from the free throw line. You, you're borrowing, you're boring being comfortable here. And then if I could switch you into, okay, now, so I've got you thinking about that. Like, you know, tell me about when you're talking to your significant other or when you're sitting in class and you're asking questions or you're leading a lecture from the front of the stage. Okay, great. And then we switch to, um, okay, so now you're, you're standing at the free throw line and you can even watch the demeanor in someone or the body language change. Like, like whether it's, they start to get tension in their upper chest area. You can, when you're trained in body language, you can see just when I'm like, okay, well, what just happened there? Like you just all of a sudden, like you took a short breath. That's really interesting to me because you just changed in your mind the setting from being at the front of the lecture hall where you feel very comfortable or asking questions to now you're at the free throw line and you just took a short breath. Um, what I know is that time traveling thing that you alluded to the body doesn't know the difference between imagined experiences and real experiences. So that short breath that you just took just now is probably an indices to me that you might take short breaths when you're at the free throw line. So let's unpack that. Okay. So what, what if we started to just work on your breathing strategy when you're at the free throw line and then we practice that on the practice court? so that when we need it in game time situations, it's there for us to borrow from. So, I mean, I, I love this world of like, yeah. like the, the mental game or not just mental game, just like human performance and, and seeing, seeing how you can just find these little dials with someone. And sometimes it's just the, it's the slightest little dial to, to tweak. Again, not a belief issue. I'm like, it's not that you don't believe that you're not a good free throw. Yeah. Your breathing sucks. And when you say this, I'm like, oh, I never even thought about that. Yeah. Like I, I'm like, okay, well, let's work on that. Yeah. Well, specifically with, for example, Tiger Woods, 
breathing, meditation, those types of things were things he practiced since he was a child. Yeah. That's something that came so natural to him. I, I was talking to one of the physios, performance coaches of a lot of elite golfers. And he said, there's one professional golfer he works with. His breathing is perfect on the course. Mm. He just naturally does it that way. And he's one of the best players in the world right now, mm -hmm. uh, if not the best player in the world right now. And so to me, that's a very interesting thing is these physiological things yeah. also just whether we know it or not. And, and that's some of the issues. A lot of them don't know. It. No, we don't. Yeah. And that's where coaches, that's where other people can come in and help. Some, something you mentioned earlier, though, was, was, the time, was time travel yeah. right? Go, or, or temporal spatial travel as well, going from the classroom to the basketball court. Something I noticed Kobe doing and a lot of these great athletes doing is going back and forth between the present and the past. So if you're at the free throw line and you're imagining you're just in the driveway shooting with your dad, probably going to shoot better than this super high pressure scenario. Yeah. But I know how you feel about pressure that it is, yeah. is our, own, our own construct. Uh, or if you're a kid and you're practicing, you can bring that live scenario that is full of all these other stimuli to you. And yeah. you can go back and forth at your own will. Is that an element of the alter ego effect as well? Or is that just another tool that, that people can use to either simulate or optimize performance in settings? Yeah. So, you know, the, the alter ego effect, like just those words together, what I found was that was, it says in the subheadline of the book, the power of secret and age transform. Like, that's the effect is like, wait, people don't even realize that alter egos have this incredible effect for transformation. So that's the effect. So inside the method of now how we go and create an alter ego is that, you know, time traveling a big part of it? Absolutely. Here's how I would relate it in the context of alter egos though is, we as human beings have this grass is greener on the other side effect. You had talked about comparison before. So it's like, you know, we look at someone that we might admire and we go, well, of course they can go do it because insert data point, data point, data point, like, oh, they came from this background or they had this desire and hunger that, you know, I kind of didn't, or they're this tall, they're this short, they're this big, they're this musculature, like all these different things. And we excuse away what could be just real obvious information and data that's right there. So we do that. And because we do it naturally, and then we lament it, comparison, I'm like, I always find these things that are in, you know, the cultural sort of uh, fabric of ways that we index towards as humans. And I'm like, what if, why are we fighting against it? If we compare, and it's something that we do, why don't we use it to our advantage? And that's like one of the reasons why the alter ego gets a disassociation. We disassociate all the challenges and struggles that the other person had to go through in order to get to where they wanna go. And, and then we go and we tell our story, because we've lived it. We know all of the different intricacies of our lives, and we go, no wonder I have a hard time. And, and so going back to your statement about that time traveling, when I can place myself inside of the identity of Phil Mickelson, when I step into the execution zone, I'm a lefty, so I've always loved Phil. Um, when I go and I'm like, okay, I'm gonna step into Phil when I'm stepping into that hula hoop. One of the things I work with golfers on is the imagination of a hula hoop. I don't know if you've heard this, but 
if you place a hula hoop just outside the ball, okay, so the ball is now inside the hula hoop, and that's your execution zone. You never step inside that hula hoop. You until never step ready. inside of it until you're 100% committed on the club that you've chosen because that's your tool. You know what it's like. It's like, oh, should I use the seven iron or should I, uh, should so I hit like it like a three-quarter seven or should I hit eight, a full yeah. eight? You know, whatever the thing is. And you have it committed to your line and all that. Like, what's that blade of grass that you're aiming at or that divot mark that's ahead of you? Like, all that. If you have not knocked all those things down and you step inside that hoop, you've just toxified it. Don't bring toxic. Keep it pure. Because uh, we don't want you thinking anymore once you get inside that uh, that hula hoop. It's funny. The, the one golf book that I really loved was by Pia Nielsen and Annika Sornstam, which is called Vision 54, I believe. Oh, no way. Uh, I highly recommend it. It's a great book. But they have it's a somewhat similar concept where you have a line and you do not cross the line mm. until yeah. you've, you've gotten to like... Yeah. The conviction point. Yeah. And I kind of like the hula hoop a little bit better, honestly. Yeah, well, there's, there's, there's so many other nuances yeah. that I add around the hula hoop yeah. with people, like when I work with them. Um, uh, and it's, and it's fun. And then we actually have a hula hoop that we use, uh, <laughs> like we'll bring it. And again, playfulness. Yeah. Like you're trying to find, like as a practitioner, I'm trying to find other ways to bring levity, playfulness. Like, you know, um, some of the best golf instructors out there are that they, they use, you know, props and things like that. And I know that this episode is really also about Kobe. Same thing. Some of the best basketball uh, practitioners that are skill coaches, they use tons of playful things with the way that they're going to get an athlete to practice some skills, right? So we, when we, uh, the grass is greener on the other side effect. So I get to disassociate. And when I step into Phil Mickelson, I'm not thinking about all of, I'm not, when I'm, when I'm borrowing that identity, I'm not borrowing all of his traumas. I'm not borrowing his entire childhood. I'm not borrowing. I'm borrowing what I perceive as the best things about that person or the best things about that animal in Kobe's example. And like when Kobe, when, when I was working with Kobe on the Mamba, why did he come to me? Well, he was going through massive turmoil in his personal life. So he was going through what I consider an ego death, which happens. Happened to Tiger as well, actually around the exact same time. That's when he left Butch Harmon. He was going through a transition. And then, you know, that's when he started to, he talks about Ranger, Ranger Rick and bringing that alter ego. Like, how do you bring Ranger Rick, the guy that, you know, everyone can flush balls on the practice, uh, practice green or practice range out onto the, let me, that's one of the great battles of golf forever is, is that. But with Kobe, his, his entire world was falling apart in 2003. And his biggest fear was actually Boston Guard going and playing because they're brutal. I mean, obviously the LA Lakers and Boston Celtics um, uh, rivalry is there. But what were, what were all the fans going to be saying to him that year because of the assault trial. Okay. So he originally reached out to my mentor, Harvey. Harvey said, Hey, you actually could use some help with, um, a, a sort of a mentee of mine. He didn't call me a mentee at the time, which was nice of him, but on, cause you're going through an ego death. And cause I had just started doing work on, on like performance identity. That's the thing. That's what I'm going to use. I mean, I've got this method now, alter ego. And so that's how I got connected with Kobe. And okay, so 
this is kind of complex, but this is getting into the nuance of like the stuff that you really wanted to talk about too. And I haven't shared this really on any interviews before is, so I'm hearing Kobe talk to me about his concerns about this upcoming season. And listen, I can't control my personal life, but I haven't lost my skills as a basketball player. And so how can I continue to go out there and perform? The reason I call Kobe's challenge an ego death is because what he was actually playing through since he came into the league was um, the innocent archetype. He was the kid that came out of high school. He was the 18-year-old. And so he got a lot of leeway because of that. Even though he was now a veteran in the league by five or six years, he still played through and used this innocent thing. Well, that entire world got destroyed. That's why there was an ego death that was there. So who he thought he was is not very clearly in the media and everything he's seeing no longer aligned with that image of who his belief And are you going to fight against that? Are you going to still try and play through the innocent? No, uh, no you can't because that world's gone. That's gone. And, and so we, uh, not to take this even deeper then. So anyways, so he, he was going through this ego death. And um, when, you're building, when I'm building out an alter ego with someone, there's, there's a lot of other factors that I'm thinking about situationally with the person that they're going through. So he was now all of a sudden so concerned about what other people were thinking about him. And he was going to be now hyper aware of what's going on in the arena, which every athlete who competes at a high level, they, they shut that stuff off. Like they really don't hear it um, very, very often. Unless so, you're at the waste management of that. What's that? Unless you're at the waste Unless management. Unless you're at the waste management. Yeah, then you, you're going to soak it up. Uh, so we as human beings are what are called open loop organisms we feed off of the emotion of, you know, another human being in the room. Okay. So we do that. We're open loop. All mammals are open loop. Well, that's kind of popped in my head when I was, when I was working with Kobe and I'm like, Oh, if I'm thinking about a, an alter ego, it should be a closed loop organism. So we were talking before about whether it's, um, me being inspired by Joseph Campbell or it's, you know, Superman or it's, you know, we're thinking about characters and other human beings, but a large host of alter egos are either inanimate objects, Jerome, the bus Bettis, or they're animals as well. So I said to, to Kobe in, when you're looking and I explained open loop and closed loop systems to him and a closed loop system is a snake or a spider. There is no, they, they don't get energy and emotion off of another snake or a spider. So when I said that to him about, we need to create a closed loop identity. We need to shut off all, like all emotion or all energy from other people. Cause that's the thing that's trapping you right now. That's what actually flipped in his head. And then the black mamba came afterwards. And so he was, I said, now just go through your life and get, get inspiration. And so that's, that's why he noticed the black Mamba in kill bill because of the conversation around open loop and closed loose loose systems. And, but the reason that was there is because he was taking so much energy from the world around him and other people that then the black Mamba became the de facto alter ego that made sense to him. And then what we did from a creative imagination standpoint, and this is what, I will do with all clients is we'll build a mental movie theater, an experiential room that you go into 
to whether it's practice your own uh, skills or practice the the sights and the sounds of you being that identity that you're trying to become. And so for for Kobe, he did he and I'll give him credit for this because I, I didn't I didn't teach him that necessarily, but his like the, the mamba lived in a cage in his head. And so as he's going into his routine of becoming the mamba in the locker room before he goes out onto the court, he gets into the cage with it and closes the door. Some people will let it out, right? So they'll let out the alter ego in their mind. Um, no, he wanted to go in because he wanted to commune with it. And in some respects, the reason he was doing it was to punish himself because of what had happened um, in his personal life. Like that's, that's kind of, he's like, no, no, I need to go do that. Um, and there's, a, and again, that's not to simplify it, but that's what that kind of looks like as the process of me building something like that. Reason we say all that is because you asked the question about, um, you know, the, the disassociation of things and what that allows when we compare and contrast and there's the grass is greener on the other side thing. So he took all the best qualities from the Black Mamba and then became that. Well, I love how much nuance is in there because I think for anyone listening, that shows how much thought, consideration, creativity goes into something like this. It's solving very specific problem. Yeah. Hey, this is public perception. What alter ego is gonna have the most buffer of that? What is going to be independent of that? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I had no concept of open loop, closed loop, but there are these other constraints that are these other essentially like measurable things yeah. or real life phenomenon that you can borrow the power from. I think something that I found very interesting uh, when I was looking at confidence research, for example, is that I can borrow confidence from someone else. Mm -hmm. You know, you had Federer who had Mark Rossett who came before him that was an elite tennis player from Switzerland. If there was no, uh, if there was no precedent for that, maybe he wouldn't have believed that he could. That's if, right. if there was no like open loop, closed loop system, maybe that idea doesn't get to Kobe Bryant and he isn't able to disassociate like an animal. Like if all animals yeah. were inherently social and, and were yeah. all open loop, that construct, he can't borrow the power from that. Yeah. 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 Even the construct of open loop and closed loop, it was like, it kind of opened up a like a doorway in his mind. He's like, oh, I never even thought about animals that way. And, um, and that's some of the very indirect approach of doing work with people is you're, you're talking about such broad and various topics. Like for, for me, it's, it's funny because when I was younger, I read, I'm dyslexic. And so I, the books that resonated with me, somehow Stephen Hawking's books, like Stephen Hawking, I mean, I'm not saying I can think like him I'm saying, like learning about like his first book or not first book, but a brief history of time, which is like that thick, but I consumed it and biology and then the socials, uh, social sciences, like social studies, all of these random topics that I'm like, how am I ever going to turn this into a career for myself? Or no, they all ended up helping me in relating with clients, open loop, closed loop systems. Like that just popped into my head in that moment, literally with Kobe, where I was like, oh wait, there's another, there's another, there's this other gear towards alter egos, closed loop, open loop, 
What's the need that's there? That's why I tell people like, listen, I'd love to be able to sell alter egos off of the shelf to make it even simpler and easier for you. But there's something about your current situation, your current circumstance of what you're going through, your own history, what resonates with you, who inspires you. Like, you know, when people see interviews with me in my home uh, or in my office, there's a Darth Vader mask, a working Darth Vader mask that's there. And I love Darth Vader. And so people think, well, all of my alter egos have to come from this pure place of like, it has to be a Luke Skywalker. It has to be, you know, insert the name of some other hero. No, there's like, there's dark energy that's very powerful with people. And I mean, the reason I like Darth Vader and he's part of an alter ego that I'll use is because the last person who gives two shits about what people think about him when he's writing content would be Darth Vader. So... I use the mask. I actually physically put it on. I'm being playful. My kids have walked in on me with it on and it's like got that, it's working. And um, it allows me to not take myself so seriously so that when I write content, I can pull, not pull the punches that I, that I um, would normally maybe, maybe pull. And then what happens is it's like two circles of a Venn diagram. You end up becoming it. It ends up becoming a resonant part of how you experience yourself and you might not need to borrow the alter ego anymore. So I love the idea of the dark side. That's something that Kobe talks about. He's embracing the villain. Mm -hmm. There's David Goggins, for example. He talks so much about getting power from the negative things in our life. Taking souls. And, exactly. And there's the other side, which is aspirational part. It's like, I want to do this. And yeah. I like, these are the goals that I have. And this is what I aspire to do. And that motivates me. But I think something so cool about alter egos is you can get the benefit of both of those things at the yeah. same time. And it can be pretty bad for your mental health to be focusing on the negative stuff all the time. Yeah. So you can use it as a, as a very unique tool to disassociate as well, but still leverage it yeah. in, in a unique way. And I, that, that's something that I've really liked from a, a, a life balance perspective is that, oh, I can harness this dark energy of anything negative that happened to me. But man, my girlfriend doesn't have to see that. My the the cat or the dog doesn't have, yeah, to, yeah, yeah. Don't have to see that. And I think a lot of people really struggle with them. We talked about Michael Jordan earlier. Is yeah. that you know sometimes if I was viewing everyone as my enemy or as a villain in my yeah. life, I probably wouldn't have a lot of friends. I yeah. probably wouldn't be great to be around yeah. in general. Well, I, I think probably the best example of that today, and he's become so much better at articulating it and being very honest about it is Mike Tyson. Like Mike Tyson's interviews about um, him becoming the guy who goes in the ring, he, he hated it. He hated it because he, he, he couldn't control it. That was his thing. He's like, I just couldn't control it. Um, and that's why he doesn't even like talking about it very much anymore because it's it's sort of scared him i actually think in the last few years because he's become so much better at articulating it he's gotten more he's leaned into kind of talking about his his past experiences as you know one of the great pugilists ever but yeah i'm, I'm glad we had the had the conversation about that dark energy stuff because it's you know, again, the problem with the content that's put out today is you think that you're somehow bad because you do have these, you know, darker experiences on the inside or not everything that you do is coming from a pure place of white, hot, light energy. And it's like, you know, the, the people that I've had the opportunity to uh, 
play with is no, like there's, there's a, there's a golfer that I, I don't work with him currently anymore, but I helped him use rage as a method for him to uh, dial in out there. And you think rage, like what, but when you're the one who's controlling the rage, you can dial it up and dial it down. Rage is 100% a powerful focuser of energy. Yeah. But he, he would use it reluctantly. Like he thought it was bad and he would let, he, but then when I, when we worked at controlling it, now he could use it as a powerful way for him to get into really a zone and flow state. And then when he's in the zone and flow state, are you actually experiencing rage anymore? No, because you're unaware of anything. You're just letting things um, come out of you. I want to go back to something about Kobe when we were talking, and this is the evolution of things. There's the reason that we start to develop an identity. There's a need that's there that someone finds the concept and they're like, oh, I'm so going to use this. And, and then what it evolves into. I don't take any credit for the brand that he ended up building around the Black Mamba. And, um, but we have to remember that when we started working on that identity in 2003, he didn't reveal it to the world until when? He won the NBA championship five years later, right? And so some people don't even realize how popular the concept is at a personal level for tens of thousands of hundreds of thousands of millions of people um, because it's a, private, it's a private thing. Like I talk about alter egos, I talk about my alter egos openly because I'm kind of the purveyor of the thing and I'm trying to invite people and remind people of the concept that they've actually already played with because we did it as kids. We're very fluid with that identity, playing with you know different things to help us develop our skills or disassociate from like the fact that I was a runty little kid. And, but when I'm Walter Payton playing touch football with my brothers, I can play to a different level or really back then it was like Bo Jackson. Um, but Kobe's Black Mamba evolved and evolved and evolved and he really sort of steered that well into something that was just very, very powerful. Yeah. Well, I think it's very cool, the idea that you can build on these. I mean, obviously there was the number change. There, there, there's mm -hmm. these little things that can either be reminders or reinforcers or can completely change the paradigm if you want to uh, try to hey, like pivot an alter ego. I, I would imagine it's easier to slightly tweak an alter ego than to create a completely new one altogether. But I'm interested in is... Is it ever like, oh, I went too far down? This is, I went too far down the wrong way with this one. Like, let's let's reset and start over again. Yeah, uh, I mean, because we we do that with our identities anyway. Like, we start to over-index in one area of our life, right? Like, you know, someone tells us when we're a kid that, oh, you're 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 so nice, and then you take that on as a big you know badge of honor, and then you turn into a doormat in your life because you let everyone walk all over you. So of course we can all make mistakes in the creation of any identity, whether it's an alter ego driven one or it's the one that you've kind of shaped yourself into being, but absolutely because it's an iterative process anyway. And that, that in and of itself as a mind frame helps you to stay more playful with it. Like, you know, you're not going to finish the worksheet and have a perfectly crafted, no, that's your starting point. And because it's so hard to read the label when you're inside your own bottle, right? Like we can all make a bunch of like, like, oh yeah, I left this part out. Or, you know, like th there's this part of me that I really want to index more, more towards, or, you know what, I shouldn't have done it this way. I should have, you know, played with this more. So a hundred percent. 
Like, I don't want people to think that there's an element of you're getting things perfect right out of the gate. It's happened. Like, it's happened so many times. Now that the book has been out there and, you know, reached its way around the world, there's incredible stories that I get to have every single day because people DM me on, you know, all the social platforms about, hey, man, you have no idea how much this thing helped me through this time, or I was going into this profession, or I was making this transition from this role in my company to this role in my company, and I stepped into this, or, you know, sport, whatever the case is. So you had mentioned earlier about going into the, the movie theater, yeah. creating this sensory experience. That sounds a little bit like visualization. There's probably also some elements of self-talk in there as well. The yeah. way we communicate ourselves, potentially in the third person, potentially yeah. things along those lines. What roles do those play in this process? What roles do they play overall in performance? Huge, huge. Okay, so um, I'm, I'm glad you brought it around back to this topic. So I had said at the very beginning um, of uh, our conversation where I had Walter Payton and Ronnie Lott. And then I had my five Native American warriors, okay? So I am a very big fan of people, we talk about in the book, having totems and artifacts, physical things, whether it's a uniform that you have, um, whether it's an object that you're gonna put on or it's something that you keep with you. And so when I was in my high school locker room, I had five trading cards, three of Walter Payton and two of Ronnie Lott, and they sat next to me right here. And um, I would close my eyes and I would go into my mental movie theater. And in my movie theater, it's all in like crushed red velvet at the time. That's what it was. It was crushed red velvet, like classic old school theater, an actual theater. And there was two doors. Um, out of the left door would be Ronnie Lott and Walter Payton walking in. And out of the other one is the five Native American warriors led by Geronimo. And they'd start to approach me and Geronimo had uh, the five trading cards in his hand. So now I'm uniting physical world, unwittingly, like I, I didn't know any of this, but at, now, now I'm so deep into this after 30 years, I'm uniting physical world, actual things with something that's inside of my imagination. Very powerful. And so he's carrying them and they walk towards me and, and Walter Payton says, um, we want you to take these cards as a representation of how all of us would show up out onto that uh, field. And Geronimo would hand them to me and then I would grab them and I'd start pulling them out and then he'd tug back to kind of pull. Like, so that was the action inside my mind is that, is I'd lean forward because he's pulling me. And then Walter would lean into me and say, but don't you dare dishonor any of our memory by not showing up like we would. So they're, they're giving me, they're giving me this gift and we as human beings, kind of pull back for a second, we are narrative and storytelling beings. And we love the idea of honor. We love the idea of ritual. It's, it's what Joseph Campbell talks about. That's why so many athletes will index towards that. And I've said this on so many interviews, you can talk about habits and routines all you want, but at my level, we talk about rituals. Rituals are different. Rituals have story and meaning to them. Habits don't necessarily have any, they don't have meaning to them in, their, they, in a true sense. They should be mindless in those They should be mindless. Yeah, that's why everyone indexing towards habits, habits, habits. Listen, at their core, a habit is just a mindless um, 
act that you that you do. They've sort of expanded the idea of habits into something that's really not. And for me, I think it's really important that we define what something is so that we can actually use it. It's a better tool for us. So then going back to Geronimo, now I now he releases the cards and I have them. Okay, now I sort of open up my eyes and I take Walter's three cards. I put one in my helmet because I want to see the field like him out there. So I stuff that in. And then his other two, I stuff inside my thigh pads because I want to run like him out there. And then Ronnie Lotz, I put into my shoulder pads because I want to hit like him out there. So I'm borrowing their qualities. I'm really specific about it. And the mind loves specifics, like I just said, why I want to make sure that I define what these words are for people so we can use them more effectively. And then um, I put on my helmet. Now we're going to go out onto the bus to get to the field. So now the moment that our bus stops at the field and we're about to get off, I get to the landing before you take the two steps off the school bus to get down onto the, the uh, pavement and I snap my helmet. And that's where I feel like the rush of the Native American warriors coming inside of me. Okay. And I say all that because you weren't playing against the scrawny little number 17, 159 pounds, six foot tall kid. You were playing, there was eight of us that you were playing against. And that was inside my mind. And that allowed me to play way bigger than it was. It allowed me to get out of my own way, right? To disassociate from this the, the, now there was the football guy, and that guy's name was Geronimo out on that field. And now, why the Native American warriors? I've had a massive romantic love for the Native American um, uh, uh, traditions and history for a long time. Where our family farm and ranches in Alberta, Canada. Uh, when Sitting Bull fled after the Battle of Little Bighorn, they actually came across our property, and so. I was, as a kid, I'd ride around on my horse Cracker Jack looking for old uh, fire rings and stuff. Anyway, I, that's personal to me, okay? So someone else can't go and take Geronimo. They could, but is it that meaningful? Like I know so much about Native American history. So coming back to now the discussion about how important is visualization. Well, even all that, I'm using sound. I'm using the, the visual part. There's all these other senses that we have to include in this holographic imagination that we all have. The problem that people get into with visualization is you hear someone say, oh, you just gotta visualize. As if it's easy, it's a skill. Now, we all visualize every single day anyway, right? Because we use forethought. Oh, when I'm going to the grocery store, what are the, what do I need to get today? And you're already mapping in your head what aisles you might need to go down or whatever. But, and we're using visualization or imagery all day long, typically to imagine what we don't wanna have happen. Well, that's what produces worry, doubt, and then anxiety for people. But the act of visualizing what you wanna have happen, that's a skill that we have to develop. That's repetition, that's practice. And then the problem with visualization is people have made everyone believe that it's about just the visual side of things. No, we need to include all of our senses. Like even me, I said, I snapped my helmet. I didn't close my eyes and go back into the mental movie theater. No, I can, I can go through the act of putting myself experientially into any situation with my eyes open. Now I'm well practiced because I've been teaching this, but I also know that you can do it too and other people and like even just telling the story I can place you inside of a situation. And then with the quality of my 
ability to articulate and tell a good story with it. I can bring you emotionally into that experience. That's an example of visualization in action with people. So from my own experience, it's actually, it's fascinating how we can tie visualization into self-talk because at least for me, the words that I use to describe things are what prompts the mental images. If I just am imagining, let's say a, a red triangle, a yellow circle and a blue square just mm -hmm. to be on the wall, that's so big, it doesn't mean anything. The more specific I describe it, it's yeah. a, a, a red circle that's in paintbrush, I mean, a, a red triangle that's in paintbrush strokes with a black border around it in spray paint. I can see that so clearly, mm -hmm. but just describing it, it is as a, as a red triangle is almost meaningless to yeah. me. Um, I also find it interesting that the way we view visualization or, or it's talked about more publicly is just as you described with mainly our, our, our eyes. A perfect example, this little teaser of the of the Tiger episode, is that Jack Nicholas would visualize the ball coming back from the hole going all the way to That's his right. club. That's right. Tiger in the in the early books and his early biographies would describe something similar of, oh, I'm visualizing the shot. In his later books, the one that uh, in the 1997's Masters book, he talks about, actually, I could never see it. I would always use the feel of the swing and feeling the weight of the club to rehearse the shot mm -hmm. rather than, and like what that would feel like rather than what it would look like. Yeah. And to me, the greatest athlete or the greatest golfer of all time is actually not doing what everyone is describing in terms of pure visualization. Yes. And I think that that is so crucial. But why is that? Why is that? Roughly 20% of society can't form mental pictures in their mind. Yeah, that's kind of an important piece of data, right? It is. Like my wife's a great example. She can't form mental pictures. So like if we're renovating the house, we need to have the prop build out of the actual home and what we're going to be doing to break down walls because then she can see it. Then she can see it. But for me to say, you know what, that paint color would look good on the wall. I'm literally asking her to, some, to do something she doesn't have the ability to do. So that's, but... That's why for me, I index very highly towards a lot of times the auditory mechanism. So uh, another golfer, just go back to golf and actually many basketball players, I will have them listen to a repetitive swish, swish, swish. I don't care about you seeing the ball go in. I care about you hearing it, hearing it. Or that, you know what that sound is like. It's beautiful when you flush that that sound. We know what that sounds like. So the golfer having him, and it was actually his own shots to take the recorder and then just keep on hitting. And then when you get to the one that sounds just right for you, that in that now it's your sound. It's not just some obscure sound. It's your sound off of your club. So imagine spending five minutes just listening to that three minutes, two minutes. Sometimes we way over index on time that I got to lay there and do a 20 minute meditation or 20 minute visualization. No, 30 seconds, 60 seconds, 90 seconds. We can build up over time. So I'm glad there's so much meat on the bone around this topic of what people categorize as visualization. But for me, it's experiential, holographic, you know, physiological imagination. I love that. We, I think we have time for just one last quick question. Would you rather talk about setting goals and how athletes have done that? I think there's some really interesting research around that that I want your feedback on. Yeah. 
or around manufacturing love for the game. You know, something I've noticed in Kobe and Tiger, golf and basketball were almost coping mechanism, were almost coping mechanisms for them yeah. in the sense that that was where they felt most competent and less alone over the course of their early careers. And that's something that I believe instilled a ton of love for the game is because that's where they were safe. Mm -hmm. um, which of those is most interesting to you? Well, they're both really interesting, but I think the one that probably aligns well is probably the topic of the goals. Okay. Yeah. 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 So the, the research I've seen um, or I, from studying, I found almost no instances of Kobe, Tiger, or Federer publicly talking about what their long-term goals are. Mm -hmm. After Kobe retired, he talked about, oh, I wanted to win eight championships. But early in his career, there was no talk of that. There was, oh, I want to be the greatest basketball player of all time. Yeah. But that's very different than something specific like eight championships. Is there a trend or is there a reason why great athletes are really vague about their long-term goals, but very specific about their short-term goals? It's a great, it's a great question. Um, there are so many athletes that made it into the professional leagues that never even had the goal of making it professionally. It is so overly talked about um, that, hey, when I was 13, I just wanted to, no. Most of them were just wanting to get to the next level in the development. So going from the JV to the senior team or going from the high school to get the college scholarship. They weren't like massively indexing towards um, some very specific goal, but you know, Gretzky, he's got a really fascinating interview when he's sitting next to Gordy Howe as I think he's 13 or 14. So Gordy Howe considered to be the greatest hockey player up until that point. And, um, they're asking Wayne what, what his, what his goal is. And he looks up at Gordy and says, um, to be the greatest hockey player to ever play the game. Um, and he's saying it in jest, but to your point, that sort of vague overall vision for the people who you classify as like really legends, that's kind of what it looks like. It's a little less really hyper-specific around, I'm going to have seven NBA championships and beat Michael Jordan, or that stuff evolves over, over time, but they have a general context of how they want to create a career for themselves. It's like what I said at the very beginning, I want to be the greatest coach of all time, right? There's, but there's no award ceremony that's yeah. going to happen. That just helps me to make my decisions for how I'm going to develop myself and where I'm going to index my time towards and, and things like that. But then I would say to get into more of the nuance of goal stuff, it's very powerful in your own progression and development to keep your goals very short term. So like I have a company called 90 day year, where was that born out of? And it's like a performance um, engine for basically businesses now, but it was born out of my sports performance work. And what we found is that when we keep a theme for your 90 days of what you're gonna be focusing on, that's gonna have the highest impact on your particular game right now, that closes the feedback loop very quickly. So 90 days seems to be about the horizon line to the imagination factor to a human being. Meaning, oh, like if I stay focused on this just for the next 90 days, it's very motivating.
It's very motivating. The moment, and there's been a lot of research at Stanford, um, uh, University of Waterloo, around any, any goal, project, strategy, initiative, whatever that goes beyond 90 days, creates avoidant behavior. So in goal setting, if we can keep your goals really short term and then have a long term vision that's sort of a vague north star of what we're trying to point towards, that's a really good combination for people. So 90 days is sort of the sweet spot between, oh, I can see tangible real yeah. progress in this period of time, yeah. but it's not going to be way too big that it's inconceivable to achieve in this time. Yeah. And it's not even like that I'm, I'm so concerned about smashing some incredible goal in the next 90 days, because this is, this is where we fall into problems as a human being, that we think we know all the answers. My, my job is like when I set a goal for myself, even I'm excited about the goal, not because of the goal itself, but because of all of the unseen dominoes that I'm dropping, that I have no idea how it's going to impact me, my world, my life, my family, or, or whatever is important to me. It's that. It's that. Again, it's the unknown. Going back to what we had said before about mental toughness. Like, I'm just so ready to see all the other stuff that's going to show up. And when you can live in that place, then what happens is it brings more levity into your world, brings more playfulness into it as well. Amazing. Todd, those are all the questions that I had. Thank you so much for coming on the Exponential Athlete Podcast. Where can people learn more about what you're working on, your website? And yeah. for, for elite athletes that are listening to the podcast, where can they potentially reach out to you for, uh, to learn more specifically one-on-one? Yeah, sure. So toddherman.me. So T-O-D-D, herman.me is my home base on the interwebs. Um, it seems that everyone loves to typically reach out to me. That I've got a contact form on the on the website, um, but they typically DM me on social media. So Instagram is Todd underscore Herman. Same thing on Twitter. So, um, uh, but yeah, feel free. And if you've got a favorite takeaway from this, like you know, tag Ken and myself. I always love to hear some of the things that like most resonated with someone when they were listening. Amazing. Thank you again. Cheers, man. Appreciate what it. What a pleasure.